Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. In May 1997, Fulham were back into Division 2 after a remarkable change in fortunes under the stewardship of a fresh-faced Mickey Adams. But later that month, this man stepped in as chairman. Life is about choices. We have chosen Fulham. Yes, Mohamed Al-Fayed bought Fulham Football Club and the black and white corner of Southwest London was never the same again. Clark deflected Davis! Unbelievably, they have done it! Welcome to Fulham Folklore, where we celebrate iconic FFC moments and personalities from down the years. And following his death at the age of 94, we're going to look back at Mohamed Al-Fayed's tenure as chairman of Fulham FC. We'll ask why he bought the club and just why his name is still sung over a decade after his exit. Joining me, Sammy James, today is Drew Heatley. Hi. And a man who has literally written the book on Mohamed Al-Fayed. And I can tell you it's called The Great Adventure, Al-Fayed's Rollercoaster Ride with Fulham FC. And it's available for pre-order from that local bookstore we all love called Amazon. Tony Banks, hello. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. Great to have you on. Obviously, sad circumstances, but here we are today to kind of celebrate, look back at the life and times, especially with a Fulham tinge today of Mohamed Al-Fayed. We've got to start with talking about um, your book. It's going to be out in October. As I said, it's available for pre-order. What was that process like charting Al-Fayed's 16 years at the club? Well, it was it was great fun talking to people. It was because um, I've I've been covering Fulham for a long time for papers as well. And I, I you know, being a Fulham follower, I, I knew a lot of people like Mickey Adams, um, Simon Morgan, Kit Simons, all that crew, Neil Rodford. So that was the fun bit. Putting it all together <laughs> was a bit of a task, particularly when you, you talk about the, the ground issues and Marley and everything. That was a hefty old period of just getting your head around all of that and putting it all together. So, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. And, and what you find is, and this is really a history book, isn't it? Because the book ends 10 years ago. Um, so it, it's a piece of history, but it's a piece of history which as football fans we, we all remember. Um, but it's surprising how people's memories fade. It really is, and I found that talking to people. So if you ever come to write a book and you rely on people's memories, just check. <laughs> the greatest journalistic advice we could ever get. Well, look, let's start off with a bit of context before Al-Fayed's time, because the 96-97 season beforehand, I think, is crucial to setting the scene. This was a season, if you weren't alive or maybe you've just forgotten, like Tony mentioned, where Fulham clinched promotion back to Division 2 and it was all sealed by this famous goal in Carlisle. Warren. Bakary! He's been on the sidelines for so much of the season, but he's centre stage now, Rod McIlroy. Now, Drew, just explain the backstory to that promotion, because it's a pretty pivotal one in Fulham's history. Not that the players would have realised the true significance at the time. 
Yeah, I think they would have realised the significance in the fact that it was our first one in 15 years um, after we got promoted to the old second division under Malcolm McDonald. Uh, and, you know, obviously 15 years is a real long time in football. But I think uh, the biggest story, I think, for the club was the turmoil in between that promotion and uh, and this next one. You know, you had Fulham Park Rangers, you had being bottom of the Football League. And, you know, it's it's crazy even now to think that a team got promoted in second place having finished 17th the season before and, you know, they didn't do it through big money signings. They did it through some, you know, some journeymen like Glenn Cockrell and they did it through grit and determination and, and the sort of the steely leadership of Mickey Adams. So, you know, it was significant in the sense that, you know, they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and, uh, you know, maybe that was, maybe that season and what was going on was enough to, to make Fired sort of pick Plump for Fulham over anyone else. So yeah, Tony, how much did Fulham's promotion that season have a bearing on where our fired put his money. It was clear that he wanted to get involved in football in some way. It kind of made sense for him from a business sense or just from his own personal ambitions. Was that promotion key or would have he bought us in any state? No, I don't think so. I think if you'd looked at a club 17th in Division 2, I very much doubt whether he'd have thought it was a viable proposition. I think Mickey Adams taking... Fulham out of the out of League Two that season was crucial because it was an upward curve then, wasn't it? You know, the club looked like they were going places. They had what you would have thought was a very promising young manager uh, leading a very promising young team. Um, and, you know, my personal view of that is, and I've spoken, as you know, I've spoken to Mickey, I think that young, hungry team could have done quite well in in League One, they might not have won promotion, but they've been they'd have had a decent tilt at it. So I think it's absolutely crucial, as you say, that promotion. So Tony, it's the summer of nineteen ninety seven, as we mentioned. Mohamed Al Fayed is sniffing around for a football club. Were his eyes only on Fulham? No. He had um several sort of offers. Um Manchester United were kind of floating about because at the time they were looking for investment. It wasn't somebody to buy the club, but they were looking for people to chip in to invest. Uh, so he had um, a little sort of tickle from them, which he pulled away from. And then, of course, as I outlined in the book, there was Chelsea. And Ken Bates was looking to um, bring someone in, not necessarily to buy him out, but bring someone in um, to invest in Chelsea. And there were talks at some length, but again, for various reasons, I think Alfred thought he was being used a little bit by Bates and also because Bates wanted to go very quickly. And then also Fayed didn't really want to do it with someone else. He, he was quite, if he's going to buy a club, he wanted to buy a club. So to a certain extent, um, Fulham kind of came out the blue quite quickly. Jimmy Hill resigned. And Bill Muddyman became um, chairman for a brief period. And the Muddymans had a certain amount of money. They're fairly wealthy, but they hadn't, and they would admit this themselves. Bill Muddyman sadly passed away some years ago. They didn't have the money which was going to take Fulham into any kind of position of, of advancing you know at the uh, Andy, Andy Muddyman said to me when I talked to him if no one had come in they could probably have established Fulham as a say top half division one club that was it that was the limit of their ambition if they wanted to do any more they needed to get someone else in 
And um, at the time, Mark Collins, who was a director uh, at Harrods, was a, a friend of Andy, Andy Muddyman's. There were several kind of pin, – there was a pincer movement. There were the Muddymans and um, Collins. There were several other people at the top end who were sniffing around Al-Fayed, plus of other people. Sultan of Brunei was another another potential candidate. Um, it, it was um, – it was a complicated affair, but in the end, uh, I think it was the Muddymans who were key to this. Yeah, completely. I mean, the entire kind of back and forth in your book is is fascinating here. It just how a deal like this gets across the line. And I'm sure even today it would be even, even more complex than it was back in 1997. And you kind of see the back and forth of the test sale of something like Manchester United. You can only imagine what even further multiplication that is and just the levels of complexity of trying to buy uh, a football club like this. And so Drew eventually, Al Fayed, um, becomes the chairman of Fulham. And there's a line from Tony's book that I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on is that Al Fayed said, do it for the fans. They appreciate. And it felt like Al Fayed came in and it was from day one. He was very fan driven, but there was some skepticism when Al Fayed took the reins. Yeah, I think, well, we're Fulham fans, aren't we? There's always a healthy dose of skepticism and pessimism. We wouldn't be Fulham fans if there wasn't. Um, you know, I, I think I mentioned Fulham Park Rangers earlier and, you know, that was so nearly a reality driven by David Bulstrode and that was a decade earlier. And if you imagine now that, you know, in 2014, we were, you know, imagine we were going to merge with QPR in 2014, you know, those wounds would still be fresh, wouldn't they? You know, we, would, we wouldn't be anywhere near healing. So, you know, you can imagine when somebody comes in with, you know, a lot of money and big ambitions, you know, I think in football, you, you do have that... Uh, you do have that sort of side eye and you wonder what people's true intentions are. But he did. He came in. He came in with the showmanship and the the flamboyance and the you know, the, the affable Mohamed Al-Fayed. And I think that slowly eroded the scepticism. And, you know, as I'm sure we'll get into, there's then some points where that scepticism pr- proved a bit well-founded. But, uh, uh, you know, it did, didn't take long, I don't think, for us to just sort of get on board with the ride, especially when some of the some of the larger sort of signings start to come in. Yeah, well, um, Tony, Al Fayed, in his own classic way, put the marker out from almost day one. So it's May 1997. He's purchased the club. And at his very first press conference, he said the now famous phrase that he would turn Fulham into the Manchester United of the South. But he also said we'd be as big as Chelsea, which I feel like is maybe the uh, the line from that press conference is a little bit more forgotten. Yeah, it's quite interesting because I talked to Mickey Adams um, at some length um, and Mickey Adams was told initially he would be part of this revolution um, and he was quite angry about it, as as I think you know, um, when eventually it all ended for him. But Mickey Adams tells an amusing story about the press conference. He's standing alongside um, Ian Branford, who was then director of football. Mafayad walks straight past them to the to the podium didn't recognize them and then mickey's sitting next to them at the press conference and these figures start coming out i mean he bought the club for 6.25 million but then he says i'm you know i'm putting 30 million in for this i'm buying the freehold and the figures that were you know mickey mickey would just i was at that press conference and i remember him just sort of looking at the ceiling thinking this is another world this is another world for me and Suddenly, all these figures, and and, and I remember at the time the speculation about who Fulham were going to sign. 
um, Chris Waddle, names like that. Fjord, Jan Arjun, remember Fjordtoft? Remember him? Mm. Players like that, with names like that, were thrown about, and um, it was just a. It, suddenly, Mickey Adams's world had changed overnight, and yeah. and um, it was it was it, it was it was surreal, but um, it was also kind of. Um, there, there was suspicion because of, as Drew said, the Fulham Park Rangers thing. A lot of fans said, well, hang on a minute here. We've got a prime property on the banks of the Thames. We've seen it before with the Bulstrodes and everything. What is this guy about? You know, he owns Harrods. Um, he's a businessman. Famously, there's another really good quote from that press conference when somebody said to him, you're a football fan. He says, yeah. So I used to play football. What position did you play? I was captain. <laughs> no, and Mickey said I just kept quiet. You know, yeah. I just I just kept quiet. So he wasn't a football man, you know. And at that point, that is why I think a lot of people treated it with. It's not as if you're getting, mind you. I mean, you could have said the same about Ken Bates and. Um, Jack Walker, couldn't you? They were they were businessmen. These are all businessmen. Whether they're football fans or not is is a secondary issue. They're the guys with the money. But yeah, there was scepticism and, and there was a bit of disbelief, I think, at the time. Yeah, it's just it's the bluster, it's the bravado, Drew, isn't it, of, of Mohammed Al Fayed. And you kind of you love it and you loathe it at the same time. It's yeah. kind of like hated, adored, never ignored with Al Fayed, isn't it? Well, I mean he you know, it was announced immediately that he was he wanted to go for a promotion to, to Division One, and with the squad that Mickey Adams had at the time, Mickey's said, "Well, we're going to consolidate in, in League One. You know, we're not we're not going to go straight through." But no, oh no, that's the agenda now, and that, and that was firmly established from minute one. I mean. You think about it now, but the amount of uh, there's definitely a few extra zeros that must be put on a few price tags as soon oh, as they yeah. heard all this stuff from Mohammed Al Fayed. If you're one of the selling clubs, you're like, well, I think I might 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 go in for double uh, what I think that player's worth and uh, mm. and see what I can get. If you're going to come out of a uh, going to come out of stuff like that, so Drew, we move into the ninety seven ninety eight season. Fayed's come in, splash some cash, especially in those days when you look at the figures now, it doesn't look very much. But it wasn't an instant start, was it? No, well, I mean, it was pre-transfer window this as well. So it's like, that's so ingrained in the football culture, it's easy to forget. But the lineup in against Wrexham in Fire's first league game, it wasn't too dissimilar to the one that finished the previous season. We had um, Steve Hayward, who we brought in, and Paul Moody, uh, who was on the bench, started on the bench in that game. Uh, and they came in for like about 200,000, I think Moody was, and, and Hayward a little bit less. So it's not... It's not small change, not even then, but um, but it wasn't the seven figures we'd see just a couple of months later, um, because you know we'd start then bringing those in. The the Paul Pescar Solidos would come in in October and so on. So uh, it was a sort of a slowish start. On thirtieth of August, nineteen ninety seven, Fulham lost their first league match of the season against Wickham Wanderers, and the day after came this news: normal programming has been suspended, and we now join Martin Lewis in the news studio. 
This is BBC Television from London. Diana, Princess of Wales, has died after a car crash in Paris. The French government announced her death just before five o'clock this morning. Buckingham Palace confirmed the news shortly afterwards. Normal programmes have been suspended while we bring you the latest developments throughout the morning. Obviously, that clip doesn't reference it. But as we know, Mohammed Al-Fayed's son, Dodi, dies in that car accident too. Now, of course... Tony, at this time, Alfired's motivations towards Fulham weren't by any way stretch of the imagination the main concern. But if anything, this news kind of seemed to solidify his desire to work for the club. I can't remember the date that they played Plymouth. Yes, I've got it here. 9th of September. So it's That's it. le less than two weeks. And um, before the game, he came out onto the pitch with Michael Cole and a piper played a lament, and the players all stood. And I wasn't there for that match, but friends of mine were. And, and the sort of outpouring of affection for the guy, he didn't say anything, he just stood there while the piper played. I think Michael Cole said a few words and then they went off. But the kind of outpouring of love that he got from the fans, I think meant something. I think that struck a chord with him at that point, you know. And, and, and not just at that moment, but around that whole era, that whole period. You know, I've spoken to several people since, and, and they say that was a key moment, really, because that kind of, he felt the connection there. You know, he felt like there are people there who want him, and there are people there who have an affection for him, because he didn't always feel that in England. Yeah, that was a key moment, really, that, that, especially that night with the Plymouth game. I mean, actually, you think about it, Drew, that's such a big moment for the country. It was such a, the world stopped almost in the UK for, for, for a week, almost, it felt like. And I guess for that to happen so publicly with the new owner, it certainly brought a human side to Al Fired. And, and, and as Tony says, obviously, no one would have wanted or intended for this to happen. But that connection that he would have got, especially that night being seen at Craven Cottage so soon afterwards, actually is probably pretty significant. And we'll come on to the conversation later about why he's so widely remembered and it's so affectionate, the love that Fulham fans have towards Al Fired. Yeah, it's, you know, take sometimes take something as earth shattering as, you know, losing a family member. And then, you know, that that Plymouth game was the, you know, the Fulham fans putting a putting a big arm around him and saying, come here, come here, mate, your family now. And, you know, taking him in and, you know, it, it takes something like that for, for that to happen. And, you you know, it's as you say, the world, the, the country certainly stopped and you wouldn't wish that on anyone. But, you know, it certainly accelerated that. Uh, that relationship between the Fulham fans and and fired it made him as as you said made him human Tony and and he's and we brought him in as one of our own didn't we Yeah, but Drew, there wasn't actually that much sentimentality because less than one month later, Adam's out and uh, he moved quickly here and uh, you know Tony alluded to to it earlier that. Um, Adams was seen as part of the future, but yeah, it didn't take long for, for Al Fayed and, and the people running the club's heads to get turned by, by bigger and brighter names. Yeah, he didn't fit. He never fit the bill, did he? He wasn't the right face for the new for the new era. And you know, that's that walking past him at the press conference. That's that's an astounding story. I didn't. I've never heard that before. That you know, that shows, doesn't it? He was never. He was never the guy. And 
you know, as another indication of the sort of tentative beginnings of the fight era, you know, brings in uh, Kevin Keegan, but only as the oddly titled chief of footballing operations. Never, never heard before or since. And uh, <laughs> and it was actually it was actually Ray Wilkins coming in as as manager. And you think you look at it and. Keegan had nearly won the Premier League with Newcastle a couple of years earlier and, you know, brought them up from the championship and they were sort of swashbuckling, incredible football side. And Ray Wilkins had managed QPR for two years as player manager and got relegated. And the season before had played for four clubs, including Millwall and Leighton Orient, before hanging up his boots. And you just think, hang on, we've got this the wrong way round here or we've done, this is a bit odd. I don't know whether... Uh, and Tony, you probably know more than me whether he brought it, he wanted to bring Keegan in immediately as manager, and Keegan wasn't up for it or what. It just it was a very strange way to do it. And as we know, eventually Keegan would take the the seat in the dugout. But um, yes, yeah, it was all. I remember it just being a strange appointment even then. The rumours about Keegan, you probably remember, were swirling about at the time. Um, Alfred had met him. In the months previously, because Keegan, if you remember when he left, when he left Newcastle, he, he tried to set up this thing called the Soccer Circus. It was like a soccer theme park. And he wanted some um, sponsors or investors. And he approached Al-Fayed. I think it was early in 1997. Um, and that kind of stuck in... Fayed's mind about Keegan. You know, they liked Keegan. Keegan was someone who looked like uh, he had a bit of something about him. And that, you know, there were some reports. I remember a couple of papers reported that he was meeting Keegan. This is while Mickey was still in charge at the start of that season. Al Fayed is like, you know, has, has, met, Ke- has met Keegan and um, uh, Keegan is set to be Fulham's new manager. It wasn't quite that. That was about the soccer circus. But then it obviously stuck in Al Fayed's mind. And, um, you know, Mickey ran out of time, simply. He was the Wolves will League Cup tie, which was kind of at that point, that was the cut-off point. And off went Mickey. And um, I think Keegan said initially, if you if you look at the press conferences, I don't want to be in the dugout at the moment. I will, I'll help put things together, but then I'm going to put on the suit and I'm going to make this club, I'm going to put the infrastructure of this club right. Because he was. there were things like looking for a new training ground and sponsors and everything. Um, they were still sponsored by the GMB, I think, at this yeah. point. And Keegan wanted to change that and get a bigger name sponsor. They wanted a training ground. They were still, I think, at the old BBC ground or they might have been at the Bank of England ground, one of the two. All those things in the background needed, because they were pretty ramshackle still behind the scenes um, at this point. And Keegan said, initially, you know, Ray can do the team. I'll be putting on the suit and doing all the other stuff behind the scenes. Didn't last, obviously, but that's what the initial uh, premise was. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
It's just crazy, Tony, isn't it? I mean, by modern standards, I don't know, Birmingham City are just being bought by Tom Brady. And imagine they got Jurgen Klopp to go be their director of football the next season. I mean, it, obviously, the levels of between the, the very top now and those divisions below are now monstrously greater than they were then. But it still was a ridiculous um, step down from Keegan, from where he was competing just a, a year earlier. Yeah, but... Again, he was like the overall in charge of the club, wasn't he? He wasn't just the manager. It was like a project. Yeah. I mean, Neil Rodford called him the Pied Piper. He was like the guy who was going to lead Fulham into the um, into the new era. He wasn't just a coach. He was the guy in overall control. Yeah. Whereas if Kevin Keegan had stepped down and become, you know, manager of a club at the bottom end or the middle, where were they, sort of mid-table league one when he took over that would but this was that that would be odd but he, it wasn't just that he was the man in overall control of everything football related Al Fayed's number one man and yeah. that looked better from a Keegan point of view you know I guess kind of like a foot soldier at a FTSE 100 company going to a startup but then being the chief exec I guess exactly. that kind of vibe I get it I get it well, well look we obviously could do this podcast and go through season by season, but that's why you need to buy Tony's book if you want the season by season blow. So we are going to kind of take big jumps in this podcast as we go. So Tony into division one and Keegan's got us there. And then the appointment of John Tagana and mm. other than maybe Roy, which we'll touch on a little bit, surely his most significant managerial appointments um and as we find out later it ends pretty badly but at the start it was all great oh absolutely i mean um paul bracewell was kind of the continuity candidate that failed he wasn't yeah. going to get them in the playoffs they had their eye on tigana for a while um the muddymans had approached him he just uh, i think he did really well at monaco and uh, he was like the bright young thing of European football at, at, at that point. They had their eye on him at some po uh, for, for for some time, and he actually watched a few games at the end of that season. If you remember, when um, I think Karl-Heinz Riedler and Roy Evans took over control of the team for about six games after mm. Bracewell had been sacked, um, and they weren't getting they they finished sort of tenth or something like that. I can't recall, but by that time. Tagana had already been put in place and he watched a few of the games at the end of that season. And as I say in the book, that summer, the players didn't know what hit them. It was the most, and, and if you talk to any of them, like Chris Coleman, for instance, he, he said, I've never, ever had a pre-season like that under Tagana. I was the fittest I'd ever been in my life. And they all say this to a man. They say this. The new regime which Tagana brought in made them fitter, stronger. They thought about the game entirely differently. He had a completely different concept about how to play football. He also signed a couple of very, very key players. But it's not just the football they played, but it's the philosophy and the way they prepared and everything off the field as well. Totally changed the club. I mean, I know Wenger was already in English football by this time. And he was doing the same thing at Arsenal, but it was revolutionary. All the stuff about diets, dentistry, warm downs, cool downs, rest, 
everything changed in the club. It was hugely significant, and not just in fo- uh, in Fulham, but in English football as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think Division One knew what hit it because Fulham absolutely steamrolled uh, the league that year. And just four years after buying the club, Fulham are in the Premiership, and this is what happened. Just four minutes into that maiden season. Beautifully brought down by Saha! Fulham's first Premiership goal is taken less than four minutes. Davis made it. Saha scored it. That was Louis Saha scoring the opening goal at Old Trafford on that brilliant August day in 2001. Obviously, Fulham actually lost 3-2 in the end, but what a statement that day was. Um he, Louis wasn't one of those incredible summer signings through that summer, but uh, talk us through uh, a few of them because that really was the kind of outfired splashing the cash summer that we that we all really remember. Yeah, he'd gotten used to uh, spending a few bob by this point, Ed Chairman Mo, and uh, hit his stride in that regard. And obviously, we tied down Bermorte uh, that summer, and then uh, we brought in a few players who'd just become absolute key parts to the Mohamed Al fired Fulham story: uh, Sylvain Leguinsky, Steve Mabrunk, uh, Edwin Van der Sar. I mean, I remember being on holiday in Wales with my mum and dad and brother and sister, and seeing that on the back page of the Sun, and you know, as a as a 13, 14 year old boy, my jaw hit the floor. I couldn't, couldn't believe it. Um, and it still, still to this day blows my mind that that happened. Uh, you know, most, most of them hits. I mean, you've got Steve Marley as the outlier there and, you know, his time at the club has been almost done to death, but you had John Harley who did, you know, 21, I think from Chelsea. You can't at the time, you know, that seems like good business. It was all right. And then we had, um, uh, Abdezawadu who for, Probably for a, didn't do as well as he probably should have done, uh, being a six foot three defender, centre back. He thought he probably could have reached the potential a bit more. But again, I think he was young. So, you know, I think it was not a bad uh, summer of transfers for uh, for a club coming up to the Premier League. And as I say, the Leguinskis and Malbranks and Vanessa's of this world are etched into the, the fabric of the club now. I found it interesting in your book that the semi final FA Cup defeat against Chelsea that season became a little bit of a turning point and I'd never really realised the significance of that because I would have just thought that would be a well done lads first season in the premiership you made it to a semi-final and you're a bit unlucky but Alfie didn't quite see it that way no I didn't realise this either until I um you know Tagana spoke about it don't forget that, that things broke down with between Alfie and Tagana sometime after this you know they had another season um in the Premier League um, but I think that was a, a bit of a key moment in Tagana's mind because instead of praising the players and said, oh, brilliant, lad, you got to the FA Cup semi-final. We've done really well. We've had a great season. He went on about how he let, how they how they were going to cost him money. And Tagana, from that moment on, I think at the back of his mind, he thought, hmm, I'm not sure now. You know, long term, I'm just not sure about this bloke, you know. And uh, I think that was the start really. Perhaps not in Fayed's mind, but in Tagana's mind. Yeah, uh, Drew, interesting quote here from Tagana in Tony's book at the, be- at the beginning of the 2002-2003 season. And I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, uh, where have we heard this recently? I've only a year left on my contract and I don't know what's happening inside the club. I need a meeting with my chairman about that. He then insisted he needed four new players to make his team competitive at the top level. Mm-hmm. How uh, 
how history just is basically cyclical and repeats. Tale as old as time, isn't it? You know, manager knocking on the door <laughs> wanting to have the answers. I mean, I, I've i said this on pods before, Sammy. I, I'm convinced that, you know, Marco will go the same way as Tagano. I don't think he'll finish the season at the club. Um, I think when it gets to a point like this, it, it becomes untenable. But, you know, it's clear with hindsight now that the relationship between Fired and Tigana was changing and uh, as we know Tigana didn't last the season and Coleman took over for the, for the latter half dozen games or whatever I always wonder what it, what it would have been like if um, if Tigana could have built his own dynasty at the club you know over a, over a period a longer period of time but I think that would have been too that that was always going to be tied up intrinsically with Mo's purse strings which we know got progressively tighter just ask just ask Cookie <laughs> who took <laughs> took over so yeah it was uh it's one of those things, isn't it? It's not the first time, not the last time we'll hear it at this club or in football in general. Um, and Tony, at the end of the 2001-2 season, um, there was more trouble brewing. Fulham had to leave Craven Cottage because we'd been given our one-year dispensation to have standing at the cottage. And we found uh, a home at, at QPR. Um, but yeah, this this really becomes a, a sore two or three years for, for our fired because... Well, he struggles to find a solution, basically, to a to a very difficult problem. Well, they did. If you, if you remember when he came in, he had announced all these plans for the cottage, and over over that, you know, three or four year period, it became. This is you know before the move to QPR, it became evident that they couldn't do what they wanted to do at the cottage. What they wouldn't wanted to do was too expensive. Um, and then they started to look elsewhere. And if you, in the book, I outline how the fact that they looked at several sites, including the Dairy Crest site at um, what is now Westfield at um, in Shepherd's Bush. They looked that was that was kind of emerged as the favourite site. Um, and it there is no doubt. Initially, they said, "Oh, well, this is just a backup." This is just a backup in case we can't do what we want to do with the cottage. But they put in two beds for that site. I've had that confirmed by numerous people, and including Andy Muddyman, who talks at length about it. But he still maintains, and a couple of people have said, well, look, moving to a purpose-built stadium, which was bigger than the cottage, at Shepherd's Bush, still in the borough of Hammersmith and Fulham, was something that Alfa had saw as future for the club. And he wasn't the only one either on the board who thought that. Other people thought that as well. If we're going to move and we're going to make ourselves like a champ, uh, like a European competing club, let's put it that way, mm. we're going to need a new, bigger stadium. It never transpired because other people had their sights on that particular site. And in the end, the op- opposition from the fans was so great that he backed down, essentially. Um, It's a long and involved and complicated story. Um, And it took me some some time to unravel it and write it all. You know, Tom Greatrix and people like that, who I don't, you know, who you talk to will tell you as well, what what a difficult period that was in the history of the club. Andy Ambler, who was the former finance director, he said uh, he went to Millwall as chief um, executive at the end of this period, there was a meeting at Hammersmith Town Hall one night. Bruce Langham, I think, had just been sacked as one of the chief executives. So Ambler and Lee Hoos went to represent Fayed in front of furious fans, absolutely furious. 
Um, there was a unanimous vote to go back to the cottage. Ambler left to go to Millwall shortly afterwards. And people said, why do you live in Fulham? It's a lovely club, Fulham. He said, well, not, not at that point, it wasn't. It was a club riven by dispute and angst and anger. It wasn't a happy club. You know, it was a very, very tricky period. And, and, and I would say, you know, the trickiest period, Alfa Ed's whole period in charge of the club. Um, and in the end, you have to say that effectively he backed down. Yeah. I never forget, Drew, the design for the cottage that Alfayed wanted. The the Medeski Stadium basically just planted in front of the Johnny Haynes facade, the knocking down of the cottage. I mean, I remember as a like a whatever old I was, I was only a teenager, young teenager, thinking it looked quite cool. How horrific. How horrific that, that could have been. And but it seems like I'm not ever sure that was the proper plan. I don't know. There was so much local opposition. It was just a really bad time, wasn't it, for, for the club? And and that's where Back to the Cottage all came from, which eventually became the Fulham Supporters Trust. Yeah. I mean, we talk about, you know, earlier on about how, you know, Dodie's death sort of fast-tracked the, the coming together of the fans and fired. And this was the, this was the uh, you know, the, the relationship-defining dispute and argument, you know, which ultimately didn't destroy thankfully didn't destroy that relationship but it showed that you know we weren't just uh we weren't just the the subservient bunch that would say thank you so much mo for your millions um we, we'll do whatever you say we you know we we showed that we had some teeth and that you know we, we weren't going to stand for it and obviously yeah back to the cottage becoming the fst we didn't have a supporters trust and then we did and it's it's it's, it's to, to sort of highlight how tricky it was. There was um I think I think the club asked fans in the match day program to present financially viable ways to, if to return to Craven Cottage if they had them. I read that on the Fulham Supporters Trust website. And you think, imagine that now. It was all just a bit complex, weird, and I guess maybe a tad unnecessary. But you know, bang up a few a couple of temporary stands, which twenty years later are still standing, paid for by. Louis Sahar's left and right boots, if rumours to be believed, and and then we're back. Thank thank God, uh, you know. Well, although now we've a an even larger stand uh, to to the right of me as I watch, but yeah, I, I think um, you know Dodi love, and then you've got the argument, but thankfully it, we still had a few more chapters to write in the, in the story. Yeah, and just uh, I wanted to touch on at this point before we move on to return at Craven Cottage, we should probably mention Tony, the Fulham women's team, who mm. in 2003 won the treble of the FA Cup, the League Cup, and the Premier League. Al Fired was the first in England to make a women's football team professional. He spent five million on it before making it semi-pro again, and I always think this is one of the most impressive things about Al Fired's tenure and you know, almost poetic that one of the last major football events before his death was the England women's team reaching the world cup final and how much it's come on since then. And he was actually a real pioneer in this. And and I've spoken to people who work in women's football and, you know, I tell them I'm a Fulham fan and they go like, Oh, what a shame. What a Mm. shame that that never happened because it was actually so groundbreaking at the time. But, you know, he was at the, cutting edge and he needed to be at the bleeding edge really yeah he was ahead of his time wasn't he it was a shame because other clubs he thought other clubs were going to follow his lead and they just didn't they didn't have the resources or the or the wherewithal and it it was a real shame because you know that that 
groundbreaking Fulham team. It was a great team and they played some great football. The crowds were good as well. Not as good as he wanted, but the crowds were good. People were starting to believe in it. But quite simply, he felt he didn't... Well, he, when it all fell apart and when he shut it down, he, he castigated the FA and said they didn't support him. And, you know, he just didn't get the backing he wanted and it wasn't worth the money. What actually I think was the problem was that other clubs didn't go down the same route as him. They have now, but at yeah. that point they didn't. And he was just an outlier. He ended up being an outlier and basically they were, apart from Arsenal maybe, they were kind of out there on their own. And yeah. It became unsustainable. It was a real shame, and he was a real um, a groundbreaker in, in that sense. I honestly think on this one, he was a businessman. I think he thought, why do only men play football? We could make lots of money here yeah. if we get ahead of things in the women's game because that's a natural what direction it's going. I think he saw the light, but he just thought the light, light was a lot brighter than it was at the time. So I always think when I think back to Al Fayed's time and the things he got right and the things he got wrong, I always think that is one of the biggest things um, he got right. Moving on then in 2003, 2004, Fulham actually finished ninth under Chris Coleman, despite all the problems off the pitch, Fulham were actually pretty good on it. Um, and after a lot of back and forth with those stadium options, as we talked about, Fulham returned to Craven Cottage in the summer of 2004 with this match against Bolton Wanderers. After 847 days in exile, Fulham returned to their spiritual home. Now by an £8 million refit. Now, Tony, one thing that I never personally liked about Fired was the battle with Jean Tagana and the row between them over Fulham's signings in 2001 went all the way to the High Court. And in November of 2004, just a couple of months after that return to Craven Cottage, it was all decided and it was very much in Tagana's favour. I thought this was such a weird fight that our Fired picked. Well, it was, and he lost it. Um, but it, a, a, don't forget, he lost an employment tribunal first, and then he lost the court case, and then he lost an appeal. So he lost on every front. He ended up probably losing about, uh, I don't know, four or five million pounds. It cost him a lot more than it would have done just to compensate um, to Garner in the first place and walk away from it. Yeah. But he had a bit between his teeth. The key deals were the Marle deal, there was the potential signing of John Carew. I don't know if you remember that, mm. uh, the centre mm. forward, and the Van der Sar deal, and there were one or two others. As Drew mentioned, um, Duadu as well was another one which was in there. He felt that he'd been he'd spent too much money, or too much money had gone out on those players. He was convinced. The key thing to remember: he never really understood the business of football. He couldn't understand the way agents worked. He couldn't understand why were they getting in the way of this deal? Why does this guy want 20%? Why does this guy want 10%? He didn't really get it. Um, there's a story in, I'll give you an example. There's a story in the book about um, him wanting to sign Ronaldo. Oh, I love Cristiano this. Ronaldo, Ronaldo, right? The Brazilian Ronaldo. This is the way his mind worked. Ronaldo comes to Harrods for a book signing. Um, he's at Real Madrid at the time, knocking in the goals. You know, he's, he's, he's not young. He must have been 28, 29. Yeah. And Andy Ambler tells a story. Um, he's signing his autobiography in Harrods and, and Fayed wanders into the room and says, you can come and play for Fulham. And, and Ronaldo is not very good with his English. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah sometime. <laughs> Two weeks later, Ambler and Hoos get a call in the office. 
Get Ronaldo in for Saturday. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> he said he'd play for Fulham one day. Well, I want him on Saturday. Uh, so what do you think? It doesn't work like that, you know? So that... I think the key factor oh, is that he felt right. there was too much money going in too many directions. And it, it was, I think there were people within his family saying, you're spending a lot of money on Fulham at this point. Where's it all going? And I think that was the key to it. His case fell apart, by the way, in court. If you ever read the court documents and you read the transcripts, he literally had nothing to go on apart from his, you know, Feelings really, and Tigana defended himself well. Won every won, won every argument really, you know. And as Muddyman Andy Muddyman says, he didn't do anything wrong. Tigana, he made some fairly poor decisions on players, but he didn't fiddle the club. And you know, I've met m- most people who back him hundred percent on that. And eventually, Fayed had to go away and admit defeat. Um, yeah. He could have fiddled the books. There are ways that managers do it. But everyone I've spoken to says, no, he didn't. He wasn't like that. You know, he just, some players didn't work. That's the way transfers happen. Some players don't work. Marley, by the way, they signed him as a central striker. He wasn't a central striker. He was a wide man. Something got lost in translation there. Scored six goals in his first season. That's not quite what was required. But he's not a central striker. That happens in football. You know, some transfers don't work out. They refuse to pay the money for Van der Sar, who turned out to be a great, you know, great player for Fulham. But they refused to pay the full the full fee. He thought he was diddled on the Carew transfer because Carew turned out to have a dodgy knee and the transfer falls down. Um, and he thought that, it, it just, well, Alfie had refused to pay the money for that. I mean, there were all sorts of things going on. But basically, it was a man who didn't understand the, the, the finance side of football and football transfers saying, well, hold on, what's happening here? I don't get it. Why is the money going that way? Why is the money going that way? And I think there were people in his family also at the time saying, well, I know there were people in his family saying, well, hang on, what? you're spending a lot of money on Fulham. Where's it all going? Probably what he wanted or slash needed was what football clubs have now, a director of football. And he tried to do that with Franco Baresi, didn't he, famously? But I think he he kind of knew what he wanted. And it's like how football operates now. Like you don't get Mark. I know Marcus Silva has a say on transfers, but not quite to the extent that it used to be back then. Mm. And and it's Mm. changed so much. And maybe it was another case of Alfired kind of being a bit ahead of his time, but didn't exactly know how to, uh, how to orchestrate it. Um, Drew, we now enter a bit of a different phase for our fired's Fulham tenure. And it's all linked really back to those transfers. We've moved back to Craven cottage, but the purse strings are severely tightened and there are several big years of struggle. And in hindsight, some horrific matches, some horrific players and some horrific seasons and Fulham deserved to go down. How we didn't um, is maybe a testament to the quality of the league and us always seemingly being able to be better than just about three other teams. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the person who I always felt sorry for throughout those years was Chris Coleman because it was quite an attritional sort of period for for him as a manager, I mean, I think it really killed off any sort of career he may have had. Now, you might have your own opinions on his, uh, you know, his tactical now as a as a manager, but I think uh, 
you know, one thing he's obviously a great man manager and he had to be because, you know, he had to, he had to pretend that he was buzzing with Michael Brown and he had to, you know, pretend he was grateful for the versatility of Ian Pierce. And, you know, it was just what a horrible time, like not fallow by any means from what we've seen in football before and after, but it was a bit lean. And I think him and, you know, Kit uh, over a decade later, his centre-back partner were both handed uh, hospital passes by the club, weren't they? Um, for different reasons. But yeah, I mean, that, those they were quite bad times and got closer and closer. And I think it's exactly what you say, Sam. It's an indictment on the quality of the Premier League at that point. I always think 06, 07 was the worst. We stayed up, but like only because Liverpool put their B team out, didn't they, against <laughs> us? Because they were in the Champions League final. And it was just a awful um and tony i feel like we've talked about things like roy's great escape and the european run to death and look there's plenty of time for us to go into all the matches um another time but those years between 2008 and 2011 were definitely alfired's probably greatest most fun in terms of actually owning fulham despite him actually not investing all that much i don't feel like his policy changed he just he just found a great manager and he had a great formula at that time well to a certain extent they did because actually if you look at Laurie Sanchez when Laurie Sanchez came in he was handed quite a lot of money in the summer that he remember when they Mm. as Drew mentioned there that we stayed up win over Liverpool and then he signed quite a lot of players that summer people like Steve Davis and um Healy was another one wasn't he and um I think Davies as well yeah. and Danny Murphy. Mm. Whatever happened to him? Not cheap players, you know. Some of them were were, were kind of um, low fees but big wages. So actually, if you look at it, Sanchez was given quite a, quite a decent purse to, to spend that summer. He didn't spend it particularly well or rather for whatever reason it was, all of those players – Bar Healy suddenly started playing really well when Roy came in, you know. But and then don't forget that Roy was also handed ten million pounds to sign Andy Johnson, and he spent a fair bit in that summer of I. Where are we talking about two thousand and nine? That's correct. When they finished seventh, you're right in that the amount of money spent did dip, but there were there were some decent signings in that period. Cookie, you're right, got the raw end of the deal. <laughs> You know, which is why some fairly cheap Americans started arriving, if you remember. Yeah. You know, yeah. Bocanegra and people like that, you know, and, uh, and Brian McBride. But Brian McBride was a good player, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue out that. But there were still spells where money was spent. Sanchez got quite a bit of money for a manager who didn't hang around for that long. And Roy was given the money that he wanted. It's just that he was better at spending it. Well, Al Fayed finally got his kind of moment in the sun owning Fulham, getting to the European final, the seventh place finish under Roy, even the ninth place finish the season after had some pretty special moments in their big wins against Manchester United, big wins against teams like Arsenal. I, I feel like Al Fayed finally got the glory that I think he initially he wanted massive glory, didn't he? He wanted the Premier League, he wanted the Champions League and the glory wasn't quite maybe what he had dreamt of in 1997, getting to a European final and then losing. But actually, maybe in hindsight, that was kind of the best that he was ever going to be achievable with a team like Fulham. Now, at this point, we should mention, of course, 
One of Alfie's greatest stories is the Michael Jackson statue that was erected at the Hammersmith End in 2011. It's its own brilliant story. And we actually released a podcast all about it in the summer. Um, If you didn't listen to it, it was honestly one of the best Fulhamish episodes I think we've ever done. I really enjoyed making it. So please go listen to it. Uh, The link is in the description of this podcast. Um, We haven't got time to go into it now and we've kind of done it. So do listen to it because it's Al Fayed at his maddest really um, is uh, is the statue saga. Uh, And Tony, all things have to come to an end. And in 2013, at the age of 84, Al Fayed calls it a day, but in his own usual way, he steals the limelight of what Probably should have been Shade Khan's big day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, as ever, you know, the, the uh, it's it's just it's just in his in his in his way, isn't it? He's he's always the uh, the flamboyant, the eccentric, the character. But he, the signs were there that he was he wasn't turning up to games. Uh, I think a lot of people around the club were kind of expecting it to happen. Um, gradually, he's eighty. He was eighty-four. For heaven's yeah. sake, you know. I mean, I'd be pretty happy if I was still involved in business at the age of eighty-four. I'd be pretty happy if I get up the stairs, to be honest with you. But <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't unexpected, um, and I think I think actually, in terms of the way things have gone, when you look at other clubs, it was fairly seamless. You know. And uh, well, I don't know what you know. How people will will look at the Khan years? Um, he seems to get a fair amount of criticism. On the other hand, um, you could argue that the Khan years have been more unstable than the Fayed years in terms of um, our where we've stood in leagues, promotion, relegation, promotion, relegation, etc. But. Uh, no, it, it it was on the cards. It was on the cards, and and I spoke to several people. Said that it, there was a he was trying to sell the club. He'd had one or two sniffs from other people. He sounded out Khan. Khan kind of met a lot of the criteria that he wanted, and he was so untold, absolutely adamant that he wanted it to go to a safe pair of hands because he was, you know, as we know quite committed to the club, which whatever you think about him, he was committed to the club and he put a lot of money in and didn't get any back. Um, and he was adamant that the person who bought it was going to be the right person who would safeguard what he'd, what he'd uh, uh, built. He wasn't always, <laughs> I don't know if you remember, he, he, he's had a few swings at Khan or he did before he, um, <laughs> before he, uh, before sadly he died last week, he, he's had a few pops at Khan since. Or he had a few pops at Khan since. So, but this is the way he is, or was rather. You know, he's not going to go quietly. No, of course. Well, look, Alfired is still very much sung about to this present day. Drew, before we finish, I think we have to talk about Alfired's legacy. There's been so many comparisons. This is not an owner without fault, though. We've, we've touched on lots of it, even taking out other allegations in his personal life, which are serious, and we certainly don't mean to diminish them by not really mentioning them on this podcast. But just purely from a Fulham perspective, this is a man for whom... 
There are reasonable grounds to suggest he wanted to move Fulham out of Craven Cottage. We're well, not even reasonable. There were complete concrete grounds that he wanted to do that. He took a beloved manager to court and towards the end of his Fulham stint, he actually disinvested in the squad so much that probably a long, slow, painful relegation was inevitable with, with the way he sold Dempsey and Dembele in that summer. I always remember he's still so warmly regarded and his name will be sung at every Fulham game until we are grey and old now. He's so entrenched in the culture. I just got to ask, like, why? Well, for me, he was, he was imperfect, and of course, and he was unfiltered, which we loved. And for better or for worse, he was um, a product of a bygone age now, I think. And I, I think in everything he did, he really did love the club. Um, and I think, uh, you know, some of the misguided, more misguided things that, that that we've already gone over, I think at, at, in his own sort of weird way, he was doing it for what he thought were all the right reasons. And 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 he's changed, he changed the course of our history. I know it's been talked about before, you know, would somebody else have come along and bought us? And possibly, but, you know, he, he came in and he was in, he was perfect. He was of the Fulham mould. He was eccentric and he had that little sprinkle of stardust. And I think... I think that's one of the reasons why we loved him. And it's not a dig at the cans at all, but I miss the days of the scarf waving and, you know, being there every single game and he's paraded around. And, you know, if you wanted to know what you, if you wanted to know what he was thinking, you could probably, you, know, you could almost just ask him at the game. I mean, I got enough autographs from him when I was a kid, just hanging over the end of the Hammersmith and he'd come along and, you know, there's nothing to say if you were a young podcaster, if they existed in those days, you could have got your, your opinion straight from the horse's mouth from a game to game basis. And it's just, that's what I miss, really. And, um, you know, Tom Greatrex struck the chord with me when he tweeted on the day uh, the day his death was announced. And, you know, the, the end of his tweet just said he wasn't absent. He was Fulham. And that, that you know, that was it with Fayed. And, you know, he's he was there for my formative years as a fan and uh, up until adulthood. And, you know, that he will always be linked with the club for me. So, yeah, love the guy. The man had flaws. The man had an idiosyncratic way of doing things. But there's absolutely no question that Fulham would not be where they are today without him getting involved in the summer in 1997. And every owner of every club, you go around the club, I mean, look at Manchester United fans and, and the Glazers, the relationship they have with the Glazers. Look at Arsenal fans. They haven't always been particularly happy with their ownership. Chelsea fans loved Abramovich. They weren't so happy about Ken Bates. No fan base is ever completely happy about their owner. Jack Blackburn and Jack Walker probably accepted because they had unprecedented success. I just don't think... And, and, and again, I talked to loads of people during the course of this book, and uh, players, officials, uh, fans, politicians, all sorts, and to a uh, man and woman, they said... He, Fulham would not be where they are today if Alfred had not got involved. So if somebody else had got involved, we'll never know because they didn't. But Alfred made a difference to Fulham and he put Fulham in a place um, where they were never going to be without him. Gents, thanks so much for your time today. We didn't even scratch, I'd say, 1% of the detail that is in Tony's book. You can pre-order it. It's called The Great Adventure. Al Fayed's roller coaster ride with Fulham FC. It is on Amazon. 
There is a link in the description of this podcast. There's also going to be uh, an ebook at uh, a later date. It is the ideal Christmas or birthday present for a Fulham fan. I I have read it and it's just joyous. It's a blast to the past. Some of Fulham's glory is not so glory is it works through it all. And um, even if you don't want to give it as a present for someone, get it for yourself because it is just a magnificent read. And Tony, thanks so much uh, for coming on. We, we loved having you on today. Pleasure. Loved it. And Drew, thank you for being on as well. Thank you. I love the trips down memory lane. It's been a wonderful way to spend an hour. I hope you thought so too. Thank you for listening. Fulhamish will be back with the Thursday Club looking ahead to Luton later on in the week. Have a good rest of your week. Come on, you